It's the 4th of October in the year of our salvation, 2009. That makes it the 16th day of Tishri in the Hebrew calendar, the second day of Sukkot, the Hebrew festival, in their year, 5,770. That makes it the 27th Sunday of Ordinary Time, the 18th Sunday after Pentecost in the traditional Roman calendar. This is the time of the harvest moon. And you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Today we are going to hear some reflections on what it is to be a pastor and a preacher by Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604. He's been a guest with us before in the podcasts. And we will also, in uh, homage to the moon, we shall wax poetical and bring in some poets and hear some sonnets by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and a brief example of the poetry of Carl Sandburg and also an exemplary sonnet by William Shakespeare. Today we are going to hear some of the wisdom of Pope Gregory the Great, a great saint who died in 604. I have talked about Gregory on some other podcasts, and you might recall that he was born into an ancient patrician family in Rome. He was one of the Genzanicii, and he had in his background, in his family history, a couple of popes, including Agapitus, or Agapitus, as it's sometimes pronounced. Gregory the Great uh, eventually became prefect of Rome. He had charge of the city, and that helped him learn a lot of administrative skills and gave him insight into the difficulties that people were facing in a very troubling time. The 6th century Rome in Italy was a time of great upheaval. Eventually, uh, he would have a, a conversion to the monastic life, and he turned his family home into a monastery on the Chalian Hill, called it the Monastery of St. Andrew. Uh, if you've been to Rome, it's up near where the great basilica of Saints John and Paul can be found, in a little um, cleft that ran from the Palatine Hill to the Celian Hill. And he there established a, a school for scripture, a building on a library that had been placed there before by Pope Agapitus. Now, Pope Pelagius II ordained Gregory a deacon. And of course, back then, deacons had charge of the uh, the material wealth of the church, and they were dealing with the poor and so forth, which is another thing. Uh, we can see how his work as prefect of Rome would help him, help him with that. And because of his his other uh, experience and learning, 
uh, Pope Pelagius sent him as an emissary to Constantinople. And he took his monks with him. And that's where uh, Gregory had various conferences like theological roundtables and visitors came and they had discussions and there were famous people who were in exile staying in Constantinople and uh, they all came to this like theological salon and Gregory turned these talks into uh, a great work of uh, scriptural exegesis um, adding to it and revising it and sometimes just simply reporting what what people were saying now, Pope Benedict had two general audiences on Gregory the Great, uh, his predecessor many centuries before. They were in 2008 on May 28th and on the 4th of June. And in those general audiences, Pope Benedict uh, very uh, succinctly talked about the work we're going to hear a little bit of today this work called the Regula Pastoralis, or the, the pastoral rule. And let's hear what Pope Benedict has to say about the Regula Pastoralis. Probably the most systematic text of Gregory the Great is the pastoral rule written in the first years of his pontificate. In it, Gregory proposed to treat the figure of the ideal bishop the teacher and the guide of his flock. To this end, he illustrated the seriousness of the office of pastor of the church and its inherent duties. Therefore, those who were not called to this office may not seek it with superficiality. Instead, those who assumed it without due reflection necessary feel trepidation rise within their soul. Taking up again a favorite theme, he affirmed that the bishop is above all the preacher par excellence. For this reason, he must be above all an example for others, so that his behavior may be a point of reference for all. Efficacious pastoral action requires that he know his audience and adapt his words to the situation of each person. Here, Gregory paused to illustrate the various categories of the faithful with acute and precise annotations which can justify the evaluation of those who have also seen in this work a treatise on psychology. From this one understands that he really knew his flock and spoke of all things with the people of his time and his city. Nevertheless, the great pontiff insisted on the pastor's duty to recognize his own unworthiness in the eyes of the supreme judge, so that pride did not negate the good accomplished. For this, the final chapter of the rule is dedicated to humility. Quote, when one is pleased to have achieved many virtues, it is well to reflect on one's own inadequacies and to humble oneself. Instead of considering the good accomplished, it is necessary to consider what was neglected. All these precious indications demonstrate the lofty concept that St. Gregory had for the care of souls, which he defined as the Ars Artium, the art of arts. The rule had such great and rather rare good fortune to have been quickly translated into Greek and Anglo-Saxon.
Now, that was Pope Benedict talking about his predecessor, Gregory the Great. And now we can turn directly to that same work. The Regula Pastoralis is found in a selection of the Office of Readings for today, the 27th Sunday of Ordinary Time. And as you listen, uh, consider the following points. Many terrible things can happen in life and in societies, lives of individuals. There can be disasters and uh, invasions or pandemic diseases. There could be great loss of life in the wink of an eye. But more terrible than the loss of physical life is the loss of a soul. Through error or through spiritual sloth, souls can be lost. Now, we all have a responsibility for our own souls, but we also have a responsibility for the souls of other people as well. Parents, for example, have a responsibility for the souls of their children. Sp spouses are responsible for uh, each other's souls. Uh, teachers have a responsibility for the souls of their students to a degree. Uh, we all have a responsibility not to lead other people into error or sin, and so we are responsible to a certain extent to, for the souls of our neighbors, even though each one of us as individuals is primarily responsible for our own soul. But no one bears such a responsibility for souls as bishops and priests. Now we know also that we can sin through evil actions, but we also know that we can sin by not acting when we should act. Now consider those points in light of what's going on in our world today and how our pastors are either speaking out or not speaking out in the face of some great matters that I think are endangering people's souls today. So with that uh, little introductory comment, here's a section from St. Gregory the Great's Book 2, Chapter 4 of the Pastoral Rule. Rector discretus in silencio, utilis in verbo, ne aut tacenda proferat, aut proferenda reticescat. Nam sicut in cauto locutio in errorem pertrahit, ita indiscretum silencium hosqui erudiri poterant in errore derelinquit. A spiritual guide should be silent when discretion requires and speak when words are of service. Otherwise, he may say what he should not or be silent when he should speak. Indiscreet speech may lead men into error, and an imprudent silence may leave in error those who could have been taught. Pastors who lack foresight hesitate to say openly what is right, because they fear losing the favor of men. As the voice of truth tells us, such leaders are not zealous pastors who protect their flocks. Rather, they are like mercenaries 
who flee by taking refuge in silence when the wolf appears. The Lord reproaches them through the prophet. They are dumb dogs that cannot bark. On another occasion he complains, You did not advance against the foe or set up a wall in front of the house of Israel so that you might stand fast in battle on the day of the Lord. To advance against the foe involves a bold resistance to the powers of this world in defense of the flock. To stand fast in battle on the day of the Lord means to oppose the wicked enemy out of love for what is right. When a pastor has been afraid to assert what is right, has he not turned his back and fled by remaining silent? Whereas, if he intervenes on behalf of the flock, he sets up a wall against the enemy in front of the house of Israel. Therefore the Lord again says to his unfaithful people, Your prophets saw false and foolish visions, and did not point out your wickedness, that you might repent of your sins. The name of the prophet is sometimes given in the sacred writings to teachers who both declare the present to be fleeting and reveal what is to come. The word of God accuses them of seeing false visions because they are afraid to reproach men for their faults and thereby lull the evildoer with an empty promise of safety. Because they fear reproach, they keep silent and fail to point out the sinner's wrongdoing. The word of reproach is a key that unlocks a door, because reproach reveals a fault of which the evildoer is himself often unaware. That is why Paul says of the bishop, he must be able to encourage men in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For the same reason God tells us through Malachi, the lips of the priest are to preserve knowledge, and men shall look to him for the law, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Finally, that is also the reason why the Lord warns us through Isaiah, Cry out, and be not still. Raise your voice in a trumpet call. Anyone ordained a priest undertakes the task of preaching so that with a loud cry he may go on ahead of the terrible judge who follows. If, then, a priest does not know how to preach, what kind of cry can such a dumb herald utter? It was to bring this home that the Holy Spirit descended in the form of tongues on the first pastors, for he causes those whom he has filled to speak out spontaneously. quod primos in linguarum specie spiritus sanctus inserit, quia nimirum cos repleverit de se protinus loquentes facit. That was St. Pope Gregory the Great 
from his pastoral rule. In the second reading from today's Office of Readings on this 27th Sunday of Ordinary Time. As I read that and heard it ringing in my ears, uh, there came back to my mind the wonderful section of Pope Benedict's sermon at the very beginning of his pontificate, uh, in which he said, and I quote, One of the basic characteristics of a shepherd must be to love the people entrusted to him, even as he loves Christ whom he serves. Feed my sheep, says Christ to Peter, and now, at this moment, he says it to me as well. Feeding means loving, and loving also means being ready to suffer. Loving means giving the sheep what is truly good, the nourishment of God's truth, of God's word, the nourishment of his presence, which he gives us in the Blessed Sacrament. My dear friends, at this moment I can only say, pray for me, that I may learn to love the Lord more and more. Pray for me, that I may learn to love his flock more and more. In other words, you, the Holy Church, each one of you, and all of you together. Pray for me that I may not flee for fear of the wolves. Let us pray for one another that the Lord will carry us and that we will learn to carry one another. Friends, Pray for your priests and bishops. Pray for the Pope. You know, of course, so many people pray for the Pope and they pray for the bishops, but pray especially for your priests. Pray for your priests, especially during this year for priests. Priests are very human. They are frail, just like everyone else, but the he- the devil hates them with terrible malice, and they will attack Christ's flock. They'll, they will attack the devils of, and the enemy of the soul, they will attack Christ's flock through priests. And think about this. If they will not teach the faith because of human frailty, or if they teach error because of pride or even wickedness, they put their own souls in danger, to be sure, but they endanger their flocks as well. You know, I'm, in, I'm reminded of the incredible sermon of St. Augustine, Sermon 17, in which he is speaking of the Lord's warning to pastors uh, through the prophet. Uh, In this moment, Augustine clearly has something very tough that he's going to tell uh, the flock at Hippo, and it was going to be a rough ride. And what he says to them as a preamble, he says, I must speak because it's my duty. And therefore, I am going to speak even if you don't listen. He says, Si non me audieris et tamenego non tacuero, libero anima meam, sed nolo salvus esse sine vobis. If you will not have listened to me, nevertheless, I will not have remained silent, and I will save my soul. But I do not want to be saved without you.
Shine on, shine on, harvest moon up in the sky. I've had no loving since January, February, June, or July. Snow time ain't no time to stay. It's the time of the harvest moon. Sunday, October 4th. There should be a full moon at 6.10 a.m. in universal time. And this is when the full moon is falls closest to the autumnal equinox, that time of the year when the day and night are of equal length as the earth whirls its tilted axis way around the sun. The harvest moon probably is called a harvest moon because it was bright and it was at the time of year when people had to go out and they had to get the harvest in from the fields and so they would work at night as well and the moon being bright it would shed enough light for them to be able to work even at night and i think with the changing of the seasons especially in the northern hemisphere with autumn coming on the harvest moon attracts our imagination, perhaps provokes our imagination to run a little wild sometime and feel both nostalgic about the past, but also perhaps feeling a little bit of trepidation for the future because we know what's coming, the cold weather and the short days and very long nights waiting for spring to come around again. Certainly, this time of year has captured the imagination of many people in different cultures around the world. In China, for example, the, this is the time of the Mid-Autumn Festival, the Harvest Moon Festival. It's a time when they are celebrating the abundance after the harvest. And they eat little cakes, moon-shaped cakes, they call them moon cakes, and they are lotus seeds, lotus seed paste in a pastry. And they have it has eggs and sometimes in the egg yolks in the center of the little cakes. It's a wonderful delicacy, and they eat them with tea. But uh, many poets have written about the harvest moon, of course. Uh, there is a sonnet by Longfellow called The Harvest Moon. Let's hear, let's hear the sonnet by Longfellow, who died in 1882. Longfellow, of course, a great American romantic poet of the 19th century. It is the harvest moon on gilded veins and roofs of villages on woodland crests and their aerial neighborhoods of nests, deserted on the curtained window panes of rooms where children sleep, on country lanes and harvest fields, its mystic splendor rests. Gone are the birds that were our summer guests, with the last sheaves return the laboring wains. All things are symbols. 
The external shows of nature have their image in the mind as flowers and fruits and falling of the leaves. The songbirds leave us at the summer's close. Only the empty nests are left behind and pipings of the quail among the sheaves. It's a wonderful poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's a sonnet. It's in that Italian sonnet form. You could hear it A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, C, D, C, D, in the rhyme scheme. Longfellow has another poem, relate, closely related, I think. Um, it's called Autumn. It again is a sonnet in that same form. We can hear it as well. You'll hear some similar vocabulary, like sheaves and wane, for example. A wane is a wagon, you know, coming from Old English, wane, wagon, wane, wagon, they're really the same word, that g, that g, g sound, and the wane, in the back of the throat, they're related to each other morphologically or phonetically. But let's hear now Autumn by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Thou comest, Autumn, heralded by the rain with banners by great gales incessant fanned, brighter than the brightest silks of Samarkand, and stately oxen harnessed to thy wane. Thou standest like imperial Charlemagne upon thy bridge of gold, thy royal hand outstretched with benedictions o'er the land, blessing the farms through all thy vast domain. Thy shield is the red harvest moon suspended so long beneath the heavens or hanging eaves thy steps are by the farmers prayers attended like flames upon an altar shine the sheaves and following thee in thy ovation splendid thine almoner the wind scatters the golden leaves beautiful imagery there. Charlemagne upon his bridge, of course referring to the bridge in Rome where he beat his rival. Images of war and of harvest. War being a terrible harvest, of course. The colors, the red, the shine of gold, and ovation. Ovations, of course, were a type of parade that were granted to a Roman general, not as splendid as a triumph, a little bit less. Benedictions and heralds, things are stately. It's a beautiful, a beautiful set of homage of autumn imagery. Moon. 
harvest moon. Black feathered crows fly, shadows against the sky. Sing to the harvest moon. Sing to the harvest moon. Standing among the moon, yellow and weathered corn. Sing to the harvest moon. Sing. Maybe since autumn, the time of the harvest moon, is such a poetic time, uh, we could stick with some poetry for a moment. We could turn our attention to a poem about the harvest moon by Carl Sandburg, another American writer, poet. He died in 1967, wound up with lots of schools and libraries named after him, I think. And he has a lovely little poem called Under the Harvest Moon. Under the Harvest Moon When the soft silver drips shimmering Over the garden nights Death, the gray mocker Comes and whispers to you As a beautiful friend who remembers under the summer roses when the flagrant crimson lurks in the dusk of the wild red leaves love with little hands comes and touches you with a thousand memories and asks you beautiful unanswerable questions a little carl sandberg isn't there something perhaps reminiscent of in that poem of what we hear in in a famous sonnet of Shakespeare, Sonnet 73? I love Shakespeare's sonnets. Once upon a time I knew all of them by memory, and you could just say one of the numbers of the sonnets, and I knew them by heart, and I could just recite them. Can't do that anymore. But I certainly do remember quite a bit of the sonnets. And there is that famous Sonnet 73, which has a, a reference to a tragic part of Catholic history in England. But it's about this man who is feeling himself getting old. And uh, you know, perhaps appropriate as we now move into this this month of October when I myself am facing one of those milestone birthdays. My 50th birthday will fall in this month. It uh, is a good time to begin getting oneself into a, a mental place about uh, the coming of a old age and and uh, and one's death, which of course could come at any time, but will come. 
no matter what we have to say about it, it will come. And Shakespeare, feeling that in himself, uh, writes Sonnet 73. You'll hear in it, of course, the reference to the bare-ruined choirs, clearly a reference not only to the man's own waning energy, but it's also, um, obviously, a reference to the monasteries that were devastated during the time of the monstrous, monstrous Henry VIII. And at the end, there comes a reminder that this life is short, and whatever is earthly will pass, as constant as it might seem right now. This earthly thing and earthly loves do not last forever. That time of year thou mayst in me behold When yellow leaves, or none, or few, Do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, Bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day As after sunset fadeth in the west, Which by and by black night doth take away Death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Docks you could hardly see Cause the moon refused to shine There's a couple sitting Neath the willow tree For love Little Mary was kind of afraid of dark So she said I think I'll go The boy began to sigh Looked up at the sky Told the moon his little tale of woe, shine on, shine on harvest moon up in the sky. I ain't had no love, Mrs. Jenny, very, very, June and July. Many thanks to you for your patience for sticking with me here as I ramble through various poetical reflections. I hope this audio project has been of some use to you, even if it has just helped you drive to work or maybe pass a little time on a bicycle or perhaps uh, as you do chores around the house. I hope you will come and join us at the blog of What Does the Prayer Really Say? WDTPRS.com Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. You can also just look up Father Z Online.com, F E T H E R Z. 
www.ghostsonline.com if that whole uh, letter thing was just a little too hard to remember. And get involved in some of the discussions there. You have to register to be able to comment, but many people have done so, and they find the discussions there fruitful, I hope. And if uh, this uh, audio project has been helpful to you, you might just pop over to the donation button on the blog. And, above all, please say a prayer for me as I will for you. Mm-hmm.